0: Hi, Chris. Hi, Farah. So season two of No Bullshit Leadership is back. How do you feel? I'm pretty excited. I also want to say a huge thank you to
1: everybody who listened and especially those who took the time to rate and review the first series on Apple Podcasts. It helped us get to number one in the business charts last season. And also, I'm a huge cricket fan. So this first episode is so exciting for me.
0: Well, given our guest this week is the cricketing legend, Michael Vaughan, I thought we'd do our quickfire round on the world of sport. Let's go for it. Obviously, we've just finished the Euros, so we have to start with that. Italy or England?
1: Well, I suppose it depends whether we're talking food or football. England were robbed. Uh, That's all I'll say.
0: Well, when it comes to penalty shootouts, which is where they were robbed, if you're on our side of the fence, can you watch penalty shootouts or do you hide behind the sofa?
1: I hid behind the sofa. I mean, I, it was absolutely unbearable. But the th- I mean, the thing is, as an England football fan, you think you'd... You think you'd be used to the the tension prior to the inevitable defeat when it comes to penalties, but unfortunately, repeated exposure hasn't helped.
0: <laughs> well, obviously, in the lead up to this match, we've all been singing the famous songs. What's your favourite, Sweet Caroline or It's Coming Home? I think It's
1: Coming Home. I think it's such a perfectly balanced piece of observation about England's relationship with football I mean for me it's actually it's this kind of bittersweet love song about repeated failure you can only sing it properly once you recognise that in fact it's almost certainly not and it didn't (laughs) again I mean this is why I said to my kids I said well at least we can still sing that song because it hasn't come home yet so at least that song is still relevant
0: we didn't say when it's coming
1: home no exactly (laughs) So, so exactly
0: well as this week our guest is a leader from the world of cricket we have to ask a few questions on cricket so How would you compare football or cricket? Uh,
1: Well, having just uh, talked a lot about football, in in reality, on a day-to-day basis, in in a normal year, I'm a cricket fan more than a football fan. I absolutely love cricket in all of its forms. Uh, I really do think it is the king or queen uh, of sports.
0: Well, the Ashes or the IPL then?
1: The Ashes is the most utterly unique sporting contest and has, in my opinion certainly if you're a cricket fan if you're in England or an Australian cricket fan provided moments of drama that I think few other sports can match although uh, I will concede that Euro finals penalty shootouts do come pretty close
0: and Sachin Tendulkar or Don Bradman
1: uh, unfortunately I'm was unlucky to not ever be able to see either well i was too young to see bradman bat in person and i was never able to see uh, tendulka bat in person but i think you have to ultimately give it to bradman anybody who retires with an average of something like 99.96 has to be the best ever apologies to any indian listeners i think perhaps we should uh, re-record this for the indian market where i changed my mind but i think uh, in general i'm going to go with bradman Hello and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership podcast, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm global CEO of Havas Creative Group. Leadership is difficult but not complicated. In this podcast series, I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. My guest today is none other than the former England cricket captain and sporting legend Michael Vaughan. Michael, you captain England to 26 test victories, scoring 18 test mass centuries in your cricketing career. And of course, in 2005, your team brought the ashes back to where they belong for the first time in two decades. Hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets to cheer the team, and you were awarded an OBE for your services to the sport. In 2009, you retired saying that when your three-year-old son, Archie, can bowl you out, it's time to step aside. Today, you're a much-loved and admired member of the international cricket broadcasting community, have developed your own business interests, which I'm sure we'll come on and talk about, and have written three books about your time at the crease. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's such a treat to be talking to you.
2: Yeah, it's great to be on. Um, Thanks for that uh, splendid bio on me. When you say much loved, I'm not convinced I am much loved around the globe with my cricketing opinions. It is correct that I I retired after being bowled out by my three-year-old. And generally you make things like that up because you want to give your little kid a a little bit of a heads up and, you know, pick me up a bit of a confidence boost. But he bowled me out. He didn't hit a weed. You know, generally, you know, the ball hits weeds in the garden and scoots along the deck. Uh, it just got me through the gate and, and, and I just walked straight into the kitchen and said to my wife, that's it, I'm done. I've got to move on.
1: You'd have been all right if there was DRS, Michael, then. Probably. <laughs> in three words, describe your leadership style.
2: Oh, brave,
1: instinctive, Enjoyable. If you could delete any word from the business jargon dictionary or, or sporting jargon dictionary, whichever you prefer, what would it be? Journey. <laughs> Which leader from the world of sport do you most admire? Uh, Sir Alex Ferguson. N- not that I know lots of professional sportsmen, I'll just say, but the few that I've spoken to nearly always say Sir Alex Ferguson. A nice genius. Proper icon. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? from my dad when I got the England captaincy
2: he, he took the mix briefly and, and basically <laughs> said Jesus they must be struggling but he just said look always remember you're managing people not the player so mm. manage the person and you'll get the best out of the player it's the best well, guys that I ever got
1: well I definitely hope we get to, to get get into that a little bit later on and uh, obviously apart from appearing on this podcast what's the best decision you've ever made Oh, good decision
2: probably um, at the age of 12 it wasn't a decision I made, it was a decision Sheffield Wednesday made. They, they kicked me out at Easter. <laughs> and it was around the time the cricket season was started and my mother looked at me in the car, I was crying my eyes out. And as, uh, as blunt as she possibly could make it to a 12-year-old kid in tears, she basically looked at me and said, well, you're better at cricket anyway, so let's forget the football. <laughs> and the rest is history.
1: And the worst decision? I don't look
2: at bad decisions. I, I think you've got to make decisions every day. You know, yes. I think if you went if you went over all your worst decisions. You know, your mind would be absolutely scrambled. So, I I,
1: I look at every decision that you make as a good one. Not all the okay. right ones, but they're all good ones. I could not agree more with that point. I have to say, let's get into the main interview a little bit then. So, you you've started to address this question actually already, but when did you realise that that cricket was going to go from being a sport you loved playing to your career to a job, and and did it feel different between the two?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm not just saying it because you know you hear a lot of sports people say this, but it was probably until about the age of twenty four, twenty five. And I've been a paid cricketer from the age of sixteen. So I joined the academy at Yorkshire as a sixteen-year-old. So you're on a you know a low income, but you're still getting paid to play cricket. Signed my first professional contract, I think, as a 17-year-old and played for the first team as an 18-year-old and pretty much played non-stop from an 18-year-old. But it wasn't until I got to around, probably around 23, 24, and I was just doing okay. You know, I was getting by, being mm. a county pro, going on the odd England A tour, a captain England under-19s, a captain England uh, A-side uh, to Zimbabwe and South Africa. But ultimately, I was just doing okay. And I was having a good laugh. You know, I was on the county treadmill. The days of cricket in the 90s was very much geared towards you played the day and then you had a few pints every night. Mm. You know, the young single lad, that probably... And no, not probably. I did go out too much because it wasn't deemed my job at that time in my mind. And then no. when I got to the age of 23, I, I realised that I wasn't maximising what I had. You know, I, I wanted to be better in terms of... Playing for England, you know, I wanted to be playing Test matches in front of big crowds. I I wanted more attention, you know. That's what sports mm-hmm. people like yeah. they like attention. Uh, so I decided from then it was a well, yeah twenty three. I decided to be a bit more serious about cricket and train a bit harder, and also back myself a bit more. It probably took me four or five years to back myself. You know, mm-hmm. around
1: eighteen to twenty three, I was a little bit unsure of how good I was. By backing yourself, do you mean that, that in in a sense, if you aim for the top? the very top, which is I guess what you're saying, was it a fear of aiming for it and falling short almost and staying within your comfort zone?
2: Yeah, and, I, and as I said, I was just doing okay and I think I was doing okay in, in my mind and, you know, in my local area, it was great. You know, I was playing mm-hmm. for Yorkshire, um, scoring the odd hundred. We were winning games and we were getting close to winning a few trophies. But ultimately, you know, I, I had the experience of being 12th man for England a couple of times and... You know, seeing big, big crowds day in, day out, mm. lots of media attention. Uh, your profile goes through the roof. And it wasn't until that, that time and I suddenly went, I want I want a piece of that. Uh, I, I'll be honest, I never, ever set out to be an England captain. Never in my wildest dreams would I have had myself captain in any team, never mind uh, the England national team. And once I started to take cricket a bit more seriously and, and, and give myself more of a a confidence boost, that I could do it. I always did well against better teams. So every time I played a Lancashire County game, which is the Roses battle, Yorkshire versus yeah. Lancashire, big game, I always did okay. You know, I always got runs. So I, I could play the big, big game in county cricket and I, I just needed to kind of
1: believe in myself just that little bit more. Was there, was there anybody that you turned to at that? I mean, was that like a switch going on your head or was there somebody that you turned to and said, help me get from where I am to where I want to be? Or was it all inside you?
2: No, it was inside me, but also disappointment. It was, um, it was... I pray, From the age of 16, 17, I'd been away every winter with England. You know, either England under-19s or England-18. And I think I got so comfortable in thinking that every winter I was just going to be going away on this nice little jolly. And there was one winter uh, I didn't get picked for the A-Tour. And a player called Anthony McGrath uh, from Yorkshire got picked instead of me. And he'd only played two first-class games. And I think yeah. it was that moment that triggered me into thinking, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not letting that happen again a week or so of being disappointed and then you look yourself in the mirror and go right shit what can you do about it
1: so let's go from that to the to the to the pinnacle so what what after you have made that decision you said you never even dreamt of being the England captain what i think i probably can guess the answer to this but i don't know what what is the highlight of your career
2: um i mean winning the ashes um you know as a leader to 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 be that fortunate individual to mm. lift the urn is is things that you know you dream about as a kid um but I just look back at you know 18 years of being a pro and the highlight for me is playing cricket for 18 years. Mm. you know ten years as an England player, traveling to all those great countries, um, you know taking on the best, you know challenging yourself in in tough circumstances. And I always think that at the highest level, the hardest thing is thinking about it because the thought process that you go through as a, a high level sports person is, in my memory and in my experience, it's a lot worse than actually what it is out in the middle. So the sleepless nights that you think about facing someone like mm. Brett Lee or Shoaib Baktar, you know, and then suddenly you go out and take guard and you're facing that bowler with 30,000, 40,000, 100,000 at the MCG charging in. And it's never as hard as you think it is. When you've got to that level, it's it, it's the mind that takes you to this horrible place that, you know, the fear of failure, the fear of getting hit by a quick bowler, mm-hmm. the fear of being embarrassed and all those kind of thought processes I went through. But as soon as I took guard out in the middle, it all seemed to go away. I just completely enjoyed the aspects of being out in the middle.
1: Is that what people mean when they talk about being in the zone? I mean, is that that you just instinct kicks in or I mean, how do you do that? How do you prepare yourself for that?
2: I think it is being in the zone. I think it's, you know, my mindset was was very much geared towards, you know, enjoying playing the game. You know, you, you don't enjoy thinking about it, but as soon as you go over the white line, you know, there's something in me. Was, I'm lying if I said I enjoyed every single game that I played and there was times when it was mm-hmm. stressful and it was nasty because you're not playing well and you know you're not playing well. Mm-hmm. And the on, But for the most part, I look back at when I had success, I just enjoyed playing the game. And it's always the message I try and send to any player or any person that sets out to try and be a sports person. You really do have to have that mindset of when you were 12 or 13. I used to cry my eyes out when it rained as a youngster. And then all of a sudden I was a pro and I would celebrate him when it rained because it it took you out of the pressure zone for a day or two. So I always used to kind of go back to the basics when I was in that mindset. I've got to think like I I did when I was 13, you know, where I would be crying if the clouds came over and the the rain started to Mm fall. And that doesn't change if, even if you're playing for England at Lord's in a Test match and you know, everyone expects you to do well. You know, the best times I had was when I took that mindset out onto the
1: middle. Let's talk about becoming the England captain. You told us a bit about your dad's reaction. But when you took over the team, did you feel like, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but did you feel, "few I've made it? Or did you feel like, right, this is just the beginning? I mean, did you feel like I'm at the top of the mountain or at the bottom of the mountain? No,
2: I'll be honest, I never, ever felt that I'd made it all the way through my career. I, again, you hear it from so many sports people, but it's exactly true. I, I never felt I'd made it. I always felt I had something to prove. And being given the England captaincy is, is the most surreal thing that can ever happen to an individual. Uh, I got it on the last day of a test match at uh, Baston and Nasser saying on the last day, the morning of, I was one of the first to arrive in the dressing room at about half eight, and he had decided that he was stepping down. I was one-day captain by then, but you know, in my time, one-day cricket really was a, a sideshow. You know, it didn't really matter. Yeah. You know, it's changed yeah. now. The white ball game is, is huge and and, it, and it's great, but in my time, it was all about Test match cricket. And Nash Hussain pretty much took me to one side on that morning. He said, "Right, I'm going to quit today. We've got one day left to try and draw against South Africa, but I'm quitting. You're going to be the captain from Thursday." So, I was then going to be the captain at Lord's on Thursday. And I, I, I went, oh, shit. These days, to become the England captain, you have to go through an interview process. Yeah, yeah. That's that not that happening back in my time. And I went, oh, shit, Jesus, okay. So, that's when I ran my dad, and my dad just laughed and went, Jesus, the mum's struggling if they've asked you. And I said, well, you better get mum down for Thursday because I'm going to be leaving England out uh, at Lord's uh, for the first time in a test match. Uh, and nothing can prepare you for it. Absolutely nothing can prepare you for that moment where you've suddenly got to go into the dressing room or the team room. I, can't, I think it was a team room at the Marriott Hotel near Lords, and I had to stand in front of the team, a team that still had Nasser Hussein in it, Alex Stewart, yeah. uh, legend of the game, Darren Goff. And there it was me, this kid from Sheffield, who had to address this team and give them a direction of where I wanted them to go. The first week was a disaster. We got absolutely hammered. And there's that moment in leadership where you have to, put your presence onto the team. Mm. And mine came the week after that we'd been beat and I had to have some honest chats with the senior pros and I had to address the team basically to say, if you're not going to buy into what I'm going to say now, you can walk out the door and, you know, I won't be picking you again. And that was fitness, drive, you know, playing a fearless brand of cricket, being braver.
1: That strikes me as being something that is very different about being a cricket captain to maybe other sports where you you're not just the person that walks out and spins the coin. I mean, you're to an extent picking the team, you're, you know, leading the strategy on the field. I mean, how did you find that transition from, I guess, like you say, like on the Thursday or whatever it is, being one of the guys in the dressing room and then suddenly you're the boss. I mean, you're, you're not just, you're calling the shots, you're picking the team. How did you find that transition? you know cricket is a game that we, we know the captain's in charge
2: uh, I yeah. guess it's a little bit different now there's so much more information that the captain can draw upon uh, data uh, again it's, it's great for the game all this data has been brought into cricket uh, I still feel even though there's data around the best captains still see the game through their eyes and they still feel the game because cricket changes hour by hour the conditions can change the pitch can change your team can be playing differently the opposition can so you've got to be able to react but addressing the team and, you know, again, it, it, it's uh, the biggest piece of advice that I can give any aspiring young, young leader is, number one, don't try and be the leader. It'll come to you if you're good enough. And number mm-hmm. two, you've got to have that moment of addressing the team where the team know that you are the leader. And mine came the week mm-hmm. after my first test disaster where I had to address the team. It's very simple in, in, in Test Match cricket terms, is, in particular as an England player, is you have to try and beat Australia. You know, whether we, we put too much on, on that emphasis, I don't think we do because it, it, it's, it's everything. That's all it matters about. And England had not beaten Australia since 1987. Uh, the 90s were a poor period for English cricket. The early 2000s we've been hammered, beaten up, a lot of baggage. And very simply, my job uh, straight away was to try and develop a team to, to beat Australia in 2005.
1: What was the time frame? Which You became captain when? How long did you have?
2: Two years. So we had two or three, four and five. Uh, The same coach, Duncan Fletcher, he was great. And he he was right on my kind of pathway of, you know, what we needed to do as a team, as a group, as a management. You know, and I don't think the senior players knew what we were trying to achieve, but I knew by the time we reached 2005, we would have a different team. We'd have a fresher, younger, more dynamic. Some legends of the game were always going to be pushed aside because I just felt Mm -hmm. that we needed a, a team that had no baggage no baggage from Mm. previous failures and I was willing to take a a younger, riskier team into an Ashes series Mm. and get hammered. I I didn't care about as long as we we did it in the right fashion and I was willing to manoeuvre some of the senior pros out of the way to try and get to this team that had no history of failure against Australia and there was a few that had played against uh, the great Australian side but um, that was just instinct that's why I said at the start what kind of leader I'm at. I'm just very instinctive. I didn't have hours and hours sitting down planning uh, I didn't have data machines around me giving me too much information mm. I, I generally just took on what my dad told me is just to manage the person you know try and manage the mm. people in the team and then allow them to be you know allow them to be themselves allow them to go and play aggressively that's the way that they played allow them to have a bit of fun I didn't care t- two hoots if a player went out and had a bit of fun humour and a little bit of banter in yeah. the dressing room you know, I didn't mind that. I just wanted a team that looked like they were enjoying it and, and, and weren't scared of winning. Sometimes in sport, and I guess
1: in business as well, people can be scared of winning. And you famously had some pretty big personalities in that team by 2005 did you have a sort of an individual plan for some of those different people in in terms of understanding that's the sort of person that might need an arm around the shoulder that's the person that needs to kick up the backside you know i mean did you deliberately work out how you were going to manage each individual
2: yeah i think so i mean i'm a big believer that teams are made of individuals i think there's too much emphasis and talk about the teams do this it's nonsense team spirit is only good when you win they only win when individuals arrive and produce their roles in the team. And we just made it very simple to the players in the side that, that they just had to be themselves. You know, I, someone w- would always say to me, wherever I am these days, they'll always go back to 2005. And mm-hmm. I, also, I honestly haven't got a clue who Freddie Flintoff is now. I don't really know him. You know, I knew him back then, yeah. but we're 15 yeah. years, 16 years on. I'm 12 years out of playing the game. You know, Kevin Peterson, they'll say, Oh, you manage Kevin Peterson. I said, Yeah, at that moment, you know, it was easy to manage. Mm-hmm. I've no idea who Kevin Peterson is these days because I've not seen him. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a clue. We all yeah. get older and more mature. We go on and do different things. I just try to keep it simple. I, I I honestly I'm not just saying I don't see myself as a as a a great leader. I honestly don't. I just see myself as a, a northern kid that played a game and I went into the dressing room. And I wanted people to be themselves. Now, I'm certainly not a Ch- Chilean kind of speaker in the dressing room and everyone would just, you know, run behind me going, oh, that wasn't yeah. Incredible. yeah. I don't remember making any incredible speeches. I remember keeping it very simple. I remember saying, look, just remember Australia have got 11 players, we've got 11 players, so they can be beaten. There's no way in sport that you can't beat an opposing team when you've got the same amount of players on each side. And when you look at our dressing room, you look around and go, wait a minute, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. I would say 11 players that could all have their moment. I was lying because I always looked around and went, well, you probably can't and you probably can't. But, I tried be <laughs>
1: but you made them think they could. That was the thing, right?
2: <laughs> and, and, and that's why I think leadership in sport is it, completely different to business. You know, it really is. Right. Leadership in sport, there's so much acting. There's so many right. times that you had to act. You know, I, I felt like a piece of shit loads of time, But I couldn't walk into that dressing room and let the players think that I'm feeling low or down on myself. So I had to walk in with a spring in my steps, smiling, Morning, lights, just having a bit of a conversation. Deep down, I think, yeah. I'm run for a few games. I'm feeling terrible. And yeah. I, I've got to try and lift you, you guys. What about one of you? You kind of lifting me. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's loads of acting. You go and deal with the media. You're talking to the press all the time and. You know, again, you, you're going into that press conference lying. You lie half the time to try and put a a, a kind of uh, a cushion over something, or you're trying to maneuver mm-hmm. something that's happened into a different kind of situation. Uh, you're lying a little bit about one or two players in the side. You say, no, there's no problem playing great. They'll come good. And you think, oh, I've seen them in <laughs> practice. They're absolutely not playing great. They're useless, <laughs> but I've got to try and dig them up. So, part of the battle of being a, a sports leader, I think, is, is acting. And, and conning a few i've always said i, I was i'm very good at and I'm, you can't kid a kid i've always had that expression yeah yeah uh, and, and it's because i've been a bit cheeky in my time i've been in a few skirmishes so when players went through those kind of situations i, I completely got it but uh, i was very good at acting in the dressing room
1: you say that's completely different but but i i don't think that that is necessarily that different i mean you don't have to often do press conferences and things like that and in business but you know you you have a group of people and you can't walk into the office every not not that we go to the office these days but you know what i mean you can't you can't go to the office and sit with your head down on the table and you know for, for half an hour you, you can occasionally but if you do that every day people start to wonder what's going on you know you've got to um, you know you've got to you've got to keep people going and motivated i mean there, there are some quite strong analogies there i think actually
2: yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess you know decisions in business, which you're making many every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess is similar to a, a cricket captain. You're making lots of decisions every day. Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't say that I would make a decision from putting a, a third slip in, or a fourth slip, or a or a man on the drive, or a, a short leg in. It, it, it's not going to cost me billions of pounds or millions of no. to get it wrong. It might, yeah. it might cost me a, a chance, or it might yeah. make me look stupid.
1: I think the team dynamic thing it has, has at least some strong analogies, I think. And, and it's interesting, you're talking about individuals. In, Mike Brearley um, in On Form to, talks about the, the, the balance within a team between getting that balance between the team dynamic, which of course is, is critical, and allowing the individual space to be individuals. If everybody just goes and does whatever they want, then that's not a team. But if you subsume and squash everybody's individuality, you're, you know, yeah, you might have peace and harmony, but everybody's going to underperform and finding finding that middle ground seems to be...
2: I mean, there's always non-negotiables in every team. We had non-negotiables, um, timekeeping, uh, making sure, you know, you're wearing the right kit at the right time. But I do think pre- preparation days, you would all say before a Thursday start, Tuesday, you have to be there. You know, Tuesday is the team day. My belief on a Wednesday is that it's purely up to you what you want to do. It's purely your your game, your your day to decide whether you want to practice for two or three hours, whether you want to practice at all. Sometimes the the best practice for a sports person is no practice. It's actually mm. to keep mind fresh. You don't need to be hitting yeah. loads of balls. You don't need to be bowling lots of balls. Now, why not have a, a Wednesday off? Why not go to the cinema? Go shopping.
1: Would you see it as your job sometimes to help people reach those? Dishes? I mean, were you? Did you see yourself almost as sort of a kind of a mental role to some players within the team doing that and say, look, you know what, why don't you just, why don't you just have a day off? Clear your mind.
2: Yeah, particularly those, you know, someone like Freddie Flintoff who, you know, he bowled at 90 miles an hour, batted with great intensity, fielded at second slip, caught pigeons, uh, you know, an in-the-face kind of cricketer that's always in the game. Yeah, you know, a bowler like Matthew Hargard who who would, you know, go and run through a brick wall for any captain, not just myself. Mm. You know, those kind of players, if I, if I saw the yeah, just have a day off, not a problem. You know, I, I didn't bat an eyelid if, you know, we arrived on a Wednesday practice and, and three or four of them kind of showed up, saw the ground, had their kit in the dressing room and went, I'm not going to do too much today. I go, no problem. No problem at all. It's, it's your individual mind. It's your individual decision to decide what you want to do on that Wednesday before we start on the Thursday. And if it's that you know your body and you know your mind best, I don't. I can't get into the mind of anybody. Uh, but if you're saying to me, I'll trust you. I'll completely trust you that you'll arrive on Thursday and put in a performance. It's, it's no issue whatsoever.
1: sell yourself a bit short when you talk about yourself as a leader because i think some of those things that you're describing i'll trust for example leaders bring their own intensity into a situation which actually can squash people in a way and actually i think you know people it can make people worry more people kind of shrink into themselves and i think they the the concept of trust and allowing people that space to thrive, I suppose, which, which, which certainly, you know, happened in 2005, I think is a, I think is what a leader does, you know, I mean, they've all got the skills, right? I mean, you're not there to teach them how to be better players. It's to be able to perform to their potential, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, I'm honest, It was just a natural thing for me to do. I I, I just thought I was looking after the, you know, the the person and, you know, the only time I ever got angry as a captain was, when I felt we didn't have a go.
1: And how did you express it? Did you get angry in the dressing room?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only when I felt I didn't feel the team had a go. You know, it, it wasn't having a go, trying to hit the ball for six. But on the first test against Australia in 2005, we didn't have a go. We were timid. We didn't play the, the style of cricket that I wanted us to play, uh, the team wanted to play. Uh, we talked so much about Warren McGrath in the Australian side of that. Of course, we had to respect them, but we also had to try and get on top of them. You know, they, they were so good that if you allowed them to get on top of you, they'd murder you. You know, and we did allow them to, to do that. And we did play in a timid fashion against them. And I always remember the the final thing I said um, walking out of the dressing room at Lords, was this will not happen again. You know, I, I'm not making any changes. So don't even bother reading the press because they'll all say we'll be making Jack I can tell you now it's the same 11 next week. I didn't even speak to the selectors for four days because I knew what they wanted they wanted to have a chat to potentially move one or two players out of the team no chance so next week was always going to be the same team and we were going to be playing with aggression simple we weren't going to play timidly and if if it meant by playing aggressively against the Aussies in the second test meant we get bowled out for 50 doing so I didn't give a shit that was the way we were going to play because the side that uh, we played so well for a year or so. It had it, been in that kind of fashion. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't so gung ho. It, it was more right. We're in your. We're in your territory. You know. We're going to try and get into your space, and you know that's uh, what we try to do. And it, it certainly helps when you've got good players to do so. Yeah. Uh, and that's the key to, to playing against good teams. You've got to have good players, and you know don't tell me that there's a good captain out there who, who doesn't have very good players. You, you need the players first and foremost. Um, Yeah, so that's it. The only time I I would get a little bit upset and angry was when I didn't feel that we played to the style and the the kind of mindset of which we'd set out to do.
1: When you're on the field, can you feel when the team is has got that intensity and when it hasn't? And can you influence it?
2: Yeah, it's sometimes more so in the dressing room. You can just sense it sense it's not quite right and I'd be very wealthy now if if I, I could change that in that split second and take that kind of mindset into a a sporting environment now. And you can feel it, you can sniff it, you only have to look around. You can see body language around the team is not quite right. Uh, it's very, very difficult to put right at that given moment. You can say whatever you wish, but sometimes in sport, it's just one of those weeks, one of those days that, uh, your team, you as an individual, uh, and also the opposition play in a way that, that catch you out. Mm. You've got to give you know, the opposing team credit in sport, that they can play in a way that suddenly you go, oh, geez, we've, we've, we've been surprised by that. Uh, and that can happen. But I always think good teams, when they arrive with the right mindset, it, it's generally irrelevant what the opposition do. If you play yeah. well and you 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 hit them with your mindset, if you're a good team, I, I don't think that the opposition can match you.
1: You talk about that first test. Was there a moment during that series when you thought, do you know what? I think we might, I think we might get, I think we might do this. Or, or was it, was it the end of the end of that last day at the Oval? <laughs> it was- uh, no, I think,
2: you know, it, it, it's, it's you know, when the umpires flip the bells over yes, at, uh, exactly. at the Oval, clearly because we were up against such a good Australian team, but, You know, I look back at the first day of the second Test match, we we hit Australia for 480 overs and we hit them at five and over. Ricky Pontes had decided to to bowl first. Um, We were delighted with that decision uh, and we hit them for 400 uh, and players came out and played with great clarity, uh, composure, but aggression. And it was exactly the style of cricket that we wanted to play and I look back and I thought that first day gave the whole dressing room a massive lift that wait a minute this Australian I know Glen McGrath had been stretched off that was a a little bit of fortune you need uh, bits of luck you know you always need fortune in high level sport Um, but I think it was that first day I remember sitting in the dressing room at the end of day one knowing that we'd got 400 the Australians had not batted because it rained And I just saw a different England team. I saw an England team that was believing that they could compete with the South Australian side. So I reckon that first day at Edgebaston.
1: You touched on this a little bit earlier. Elite sport's an unforgiving environment. Um, And you talked about the the tough moments and the ups and the The downs. I mean, on a personal level, did you have a way of dealing with that pressure yourself Uh, particularly I guess is multiplied when you're captain because I guess you're you you're expected to try and lead by example did you have a way of dealing with the the lows no I mean they're they're really hard
2: you know there's there's no other um, way of putting it that you know when you're going through uh, low scores as a a captain uh, and your team are losing um, it's really really difficult you know, there's nothing that someone can say. You can yeah. go home and you can try and switch off. You can spend a bit of time with the family. You can play around the golf. But ultimately, you're always thinking about your form. You're always thinking about how the team can play better. You know, being the England cricket test captain is, is pretty much a 24-7 job. That's why, you know, when I see, uh, you know, Graham Smith, uh, the South African captain, he he did the job for over 100 test matches. Remarkable with all the yeah. politics that he had to put up with. I mean, in English cricket, there are politics, but not politics like Graham Smith had to cope with. Ultimately, it generally comes down to just going back to the basics. Uh, And that's, you know, I I look back at every time I had a a run of difficulty or a run of uh, not playing well as a team, you generally just go right back to the basics. You know, it really is about, right, as a batter, can you just go back to your stance, keeping still, watching the ball, and it's amazing that you go back to the basics and then suddenly, well, it's not always suddenly, but gradually you start to find a little bit of rhythm and a little bit of form because, you know, you're taking away all the external nonsense and yeah. you're just thinking about that one little thing, which is the red ball that's coming at you. And when you're out in the middle making a decision, you just try and keep it as simple as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And I guess when you lose form, it's generally that you've gone outside of the bubble of the basics. You've tried to be a bit flamboyant. Uh, you've allowed the external noise to come in and affect you. Um, and that's when it gets difficult and and again it's I'm in the media now and I I create a lot of external noise it's my job to do so Uh, and I I give the players advice shut it out you know don't read microphones you know don't listen you know it's irrelevant to what you're trying to achieve you know what, what could I say that could potentially help you not a lot but what could I say that could potentially damage you quite a lot so don't listen to it don't listen to anyone just Think about your game and watching that ball or delivering that ball. And without all the external noise, uh, you've got a better chance of being consistent. Uh, and that's pretty much all I try to do. Get rid of the external stuff and just keep it very, very simple.
1: And were you, were you quite good at that? Were you good at shutting now it out? Was
2: useless. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm better at talking about it now because I understand that when I was good at it, that's what I did. But it's yeah. so hard to, to do that and to keep it very yeah. simple and to do the basics and to clear out the external noise that the bullshit that comes from it is, is what really makes a sports person have the longevity. Those that can handle it and those that can just clear it out will have a long career. Those that allow the external noise to come into their system, yeah, they're the ones that drop out quickly because they've yeah. allowed someone or something or a column or a, a, a radio station talk show to affect pretty much what it is in cricket is reacting to a ball that's coming at you. Yeah. Do not let the, the noise from outside affect the way that you're looking at the cricket ball.
1: Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's why you, you said right at the start that when you get out in the middle, It all just feels a little bit, I don't know exactly how you put it easier. I'm not exactly sure how you framed it, but maybe that's why when you're out in the middle, that is the one moment when all of that stuff is somewhere else.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I I remember towards the end um, when I finished in 2008 with England, you know, I didn't score so many runs at the end, but I felt great in the middle. I was under that much pressure. I, I decided that whatever happened in 2008 in the South Africa series, once the series was over, I was going to step down. I just decided that my time had run its time up. Uh, The the egg timer, as I call it, had run out of of, of, of sand. uh, And I had to move on. And and as soon as that uh, test loss came at Edgbast and we'd lost the series, I knew I was stepping down. But I felt great batting. I just didn't get enough runs. I felt (laughs) with great clarity. As soon as the warts over the white line took guard, I went, "Oh, this is magnificent!" I really enjoyed it, but I'd just like to have enjoyed it for a a few more hours. I wasn't out there long enough. Yeah, (laughs) got a stinking in there, caught behind. I remember in my last Test match, it was a shocker.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And did you find it lonely being the captain? Uh, No, no, I I didn't.
2: I had good people around me. You know, I had a, a team that was full of, you know, really good good characters you know andrew Strauss, marcus truscothic paul Collingwood, freddie flintoff uh, peterson hoggard you know the bowling uh simon jones steve harmison ashley giles Gerard jones uh, ian bell who was a youngster at the time i had really good people around you know and in the back room with duncan fletcher matt maynard physio dean conway you know nigel stockle the trainer mark garraway the analyst i had really good people um so no i i in cricket, I mean, I guess loneliness is when you're back in your room and you're probably yeah. going through what's gone on. And that's the scenario play where you have to be very strong and mentally tough to not allow the the noise to come into your system. And I guess they're the times back in your hotel room when you spend so much time in a hotel. Uh, they are the challenging times for, for cricketers that mm. you get so much time lying on your bed watching TV or listening, or you, you particularly in this era where you can just go on your iPad and look at articles, social media. Um, it, it's a tougher era now because the fan can have their say, particularly with social media where, you know, I didn't have social media when I was playing. You know, I know, not yeah. have to deal with going back to my room and potentially the, there's a hashtag that's trending because you failed or <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, you know,
2: someone, someone yeah. or anyone from around the world could be criticising you or trying to wind you up. But my message to, again, sports people is, if you know that you're, tough enough to be able to deal with that be on social media and control your accounts if you know that you know there are things on social media that could affect you and the external noise could you know affect your performance mm. that's simple don't be on it yeah don't allow a yeah. management company to, to run your social yeah. site don't be on it why why would you go on a system that you don't have to be if you know that it might affect your performance yeah so i do think we we use social media and I get it, but I do think we use social media and I think sports people use it as an excuse for failure. They don't need to be on it. It's your decision. It's your call. Get off it if you know it's going to affect your mindset. It's very simple.
1: Some of your colleagues in that, in that team went on to be, you know, went into other layers of cricket management, Andrew Strauss, Ashley Giles, etc. D- did you ever think about moving further up, if you like, the management hierarchy
2: Yeah, I've been given, uh, you know, a couple of opportunities to do that. I'll be dead honest with you. I I, I love cricket. I adore it. And people know me for, you know, being the ex-cricketer, now a cricket pundit. But I don't want to be in cricket 12 months of the year. You know, I have times where I just get away from cricket and I've got business interests. uh, I've got hobbies. I've got a family that I want to spend time with. And I, I don't want to be coming home thinking of cricket 24-7 like I did as England captain, because I just felt my life became too, it was great. I loved it. Uh, it's the best job in the world, in my opinion, but for five and a half, six years, it just took over my life. And I just know that if you're going to take on a position like the director of cricket for England, yep. it's going to take over you. I'm rightfully sir. so. That's your choice. You've taken the role and I'd want to give it 24-7. And I just, at this stage of my life, I, 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 might, I may go back into that. I, I may think about doing that in the in the future. It might be something that I go, you know what? I've got enough experience away from, from cricket now. I, I know more about business, which I think it is quite a business role, the managing director. Um, but when I've been offered it, I, I, I didn't feel I was ready. I thought I was too close and too emotive in terms of what cricket means to me. And I didn't want to be completely involved 24 seven again in a few years time who knows i might go back into that
1: so you you mentioned it your your business interest you've got a you've got a gin brand declaration gin and various other uh sub brands if that's the right way um are you enjoying that have you have you can you you know do you bring some of your leadership skills your experience to that is it, or is it a completely whole new world
2: well yeah i mean it's, it's it's completely different it's 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 a brand that we created two years ago in my kitchen drunk <laughs> me and my friend We were, he's very high up in the business world and we just said come on let's do something together uh, within an hour we created a declaration then we went and sourced uh, a distillery to make the gin that was the best bit trial and error in, in terms of getting the gin we've now got a rum coming out we've got a seltzer yeah honestly i know nothing about drinks you just like drinking them. It's, I don't know a great deal about, you know, the drinks industry. Uh, I found out a lot about it over the last two years. It's been a great ride. And, you know, it, you, can, you can do anything. You know, I really do believe that if you want to do something, you can do anything. I don't think you need to have specific skill sets to go into anything. If you've got a passion and you, you want to go for something, uh, whatever the businesses that I'm involved in, I, I really believe that uh, you can go for it. You, you can have a go at doing anything. It's just about getting good people. And, and every single business that I'm involved in, it's about people. And it's about having good people around the table. And those good people operate it, uh, manage it, interact with other people well, uh, communicate great, uh, and, and, and are never scared. Mm-hmm. You know, the one mantra I bring to every business table is we're not scared. No one can be scared because what's the worst thing that can happen? We won't sell a bottle of gin. Who gives a shit? It's only a bottle of gin. <laughs> the amount of people that told me at the time we were doing a gin, oh, there's so many gins out there, you know, it's a, it's a mass market. And I went, so? Yeah. If there's a mass market that means that lots of people are drinking gin. Why can not we have a piece of that? <laughs> Same with rumor, you know, everyone's doing a rum or spice. So what? We'll do one as well. You know, it's, yeah, I, I just, I've always had that mindset that um, if you're going to do something, get good people around you. Uh, and don't be scared of making decisions. And, and that's pretty much what we're trying to do.
1: Well, you said at the start that you thought that leading a cricket team was nothing like in business. And yet you've just described exactly <laughs> that it's actually very similar. It's having the right people around the table, not being scared and people you like and trust and are good at what they do. So looking back then on your on cr- cricket, your cricketing career, I guess, specifically, was there anything you'd do differently?
2: I mean, because we're in a, a white ball era, I look back and say, oh, I wish I'd have taken the yeah. white ball game more seriously. But then I say, to them, but wait a minute, it was the era that I played. Yeah. I honestly think I, I I got the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. I, I came into the, the, the cricketing system, in the late 80s, early 90s, where it was a very much an amateur game, you know, played by professionals. It was a... It was a a group of people across the county system that were playing cricket because it was their hobby, but they were getting paid, and it really was like a stag trip most weeks. You know, it was a ridiculous kind of environment, but great. Wouldn't change it for the world. Um, The late 90s, it became more professional. You know, a lot more emphasis on fitness and, you know, ice baths arrived, which, again, were completely different, but were wearing those skins that you wore under your pants totally help your legs. And when I finished in 2009 – I felt that sport had gone too far the other way. I felt it became too scientific. There was too much data, too much information from the computer. I think there's a balance. I think there's somewhere in the middle that's the perfect reflection of where sport should be. Uh, you need a bit of the old school. You need that kind of emphasis of together spirit, the culture in the dress room, so important. But you also need the information. And there are lots of, of great database uh, companies now that can give you so much information in cricket, which is great. But I don't think it should be used all the time. I still think the game of cricket is about eleven players and a captain going out there and reading the game, assessing conditions, and just trying to work out the opposition through the through their eyes and the feel. I still feel the best players in the world do that, and I think those that aren't quite as good uh, generally use this data of a little bit of a, a kind of a, a little bit of a crutch, a yep. bit of crutch from in- information, but. You know that's me. I'm sure in time, it will get more database, it'll be more... Oh, some, it's only going one way. And I'll go with it, it's not a problem. But give me an old school cricketer that can go out there and see the game, can see a pitch that's doing a bit and put another slip in. He doesn't need a computer to tell him that <laughs> hey, it, it's the kind of day that you need another slip in that you can see that through his eyes. That That's the kind of cricketer I like.
1: Michael, I could talk to you all night. I'm sure you've got lots of other things to do. Thank you so much for being with us and for such a fascinating and candid and honest conversation. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think, and your review will help others find the show. I'm Chris Hurst, and this is the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. The executive producer is Farah Jassat.